We have arrived now to the closing of the trial of the Messiah in front of Pilate. So with your Bibles, we've arrived to chapter 19. And today, properly, we will take to closing the trial. So therefore, we will take to the first 16 verses. Uh, some of you may be aware to which where this chapter begins, the Synoptic Gospels uh, make a note that the narrative continues within their chapter, um, but I will bring this up later as we look at the exposition. So here now, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate to Jesus and flogged him. For some of you, your versions might also say scorched. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns in the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered back, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He then entered his headquarters and again said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus said to him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. With verse 16, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let us now look to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord. And we are mindful of what is being presented here. For as a show to us, the brunt of scrutiny, humiliation, and mockery with contempt that our Lord suffered. But knowing that he suffered on our behalf, we cannot but so much be thankful. For yet no word, no deed, no fault of actions that we can make can ever say how humbly thankful we are that you presented your son as a living sacrifice on behalf of the church. So in this, Lord, be with your servant as he feed and teach your sheep and be with them as they have a childlike love and a willing mind Succeeded here today that the secret power of your hand put all this in place. You rise up kings, you take them down. You bring people of influence and authority and power. But all of this is so that your will will be done. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, this, from what I've read, may feel like this may be a a sermon to which individuals will think I will be focusing more so at the brunt physicality to which the Messiah takes in his humiliation. Not quite. And I think why it's proper to say that is only because Christ's obedience unto death is still the chief matter at hand. A lot of times, People will look at these verses, especially when we look at the, through the first 16, and they seem to focus on small little details, and then they're drummed up with an emotion. 
For example, you hear about people being yelled uh, expletives on granted they're shocking out uh, animosity and malicious intent at an individual. Seeing someone take to brutality. If you get lost in those kind of details, you miss the aspect of what the Messiah, and better yet, what the Spirit uses John to convey to the readers at that time and what can be conveyed to us today. So as we approach the conclusion of Pilate's trial here in chapter 19, Christ's obedience unto death still serves as the major focus and central theme. And the details, yes, they are important. But where they lie significant is because they're going to answer questions. The who, the where, the how, the when, and the why that can arise from this actual text. So, let us allow the details then to see the hand of God, especially in the revelation that is deemed important for the church to understand God's work in creation. Providence. Providence. An eye-opening aspect. Because when, we, when we're going to delve into this exposition, I'm going to show you how important that actually is. And when we get towards the end of the sermon, we're going to tie this all back. So, since Christ's obedience unto death is the central theme, I'm going to start with verse number 11. It reads, the master states, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, let's look at this aspect because the master is denoting authority upon hearing Pilate's words. And it's some sort of a test onto Pilate, as to which does he understand how authority has come to be. So watch and note it. Prior to the master's encounter with Pilate, Jesus interacted with various individuals who held position of authority and influence. It's also important to note there are other individuals that are notable figures. They were alive during the Messiah's earthly ministry. And yet, we have no documentation in the scriptures that he conversed with them. How important are those individuals? Let's take a look. First, I want to make note of Tiberius Caesar the reigning emperor during the minister, earthly ministry of the Messiah. If you want to make note of the verse, Luke 3, verse 1. During his reign, he appoints Pilate as the new governor in 26 AD, replacing Valerius Gratus. Scripture does not make note of Valerius Gratus, but let's give some context. He served as the Roman governor to Judea, approximately 15 to 26 AD. During his tenure, he appointed Caiaphas as the high priest. Interesting enough, Valerius Gratis is not noted in the scriptures. But if you consider some fictional novels, for example, Ben-Hur, Valerius Gratis was indeed noted, and his depiction was pretty accurate a corrupt governor. But historically, he's most known that under his tenure, the high priest's office switched hands approximately every 12 months. Upon noting this, Gratis appoints Caiaphas. And what do we make of Caiaphas? Caiaphas was a uniquely equipped individual who took to the office. Why? Because he collaborated with the military. He provided intel. He provided resources on to the Roman guard. If you want to learn more, you can look at Josephus' work in the Antiquities. Hence, let's take this into scripture. Do you recall when the master was in the garden 
And scripture states, for some of you, you may have it called a band of soldiers. For other, you may see it as a battalion of soldiers. But nonetheless, I'm reading here, taking this notation from the New American Standard, when the Roman cohort or the Roman battalion greets Christ in the garden, it was under Caiaphas' warrant, not the Roman governor. Make note of that. So, they are prompted, the chief priest officers, prompting the Roman commander and his cohorts to arrest Jesus, John 18, 12 to 13. And upon finding this adage in scripture, especially with the master speaking of authority, and John to make this evident, he's even providing context to which the high priest and his involvement of his reach was able to reach the ecclesiastical realm and the civil. He operated, really, if you look at history, as the precarnate to the Pope. Funny enough, upon his words, and upon that arrest, they arrest the Messiah. Matthew 26, 47 and 51. Mark 14, 43 and 47. Luke 22, 47 and 50. Again, we're going to stay within this context of certain individuals with authority. And I'm going to shed more light on these in, in this individual, especially not having documentation that, they, that Jesus had direct conversation with him. This next character we consider Herod the Great. To begin, let's note some things about regionality and localities, especially the vicinity of provinces. Because we one must understand how culture can and often be influenced or can influence laws, regulations, and officials. Citizens who are born within a certain vicinity, of a, whether it's a city-state, a canton, province, or country, they typically adhere to the governing authorities and their legal framework that's specific to their region. Well, scripture states, the man, the man, Christ Jesus, was to be a Nazarene. It wasn't explicitly stated or explained by verbatim in the scriptures in the Old Testament, more particularly, that Christ was to be from Nazareth, but various words from the prophets shed light to this reason why they would notate it in the New. For example, let's consider the Hebrew word netzer, which translates to sprout, shoot, or branch. From here, it makes it very probable as to where the residence of the Messiah would be. Isaiah 11, verse 1, states the following. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Let's couple this now with history, especially within the context of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, believe it or not, was appointed king of the Jews by the Roman Senate in 37 BC. Interestingly enough, after the Christ was born, Herod the Great sought to kill the child. Let's make another note. Joseph is instructed to move the family to Egypt outside of Herod the Great's territory and lay away. So, upon Herod the Great's death in 4 B.C., his kingdom was divided into four quarters. Historically, is known as the Heredian Tetrarchy. The territory was split and divided amongst his three sons and his sister. Herod Archelaus reigned 
over Samaria, Judea, Edomia, Caesarea, and Jaffa. Herod Philip II, also known as Philip the Tetrarch, resided over Ithria and Trunchitis. Herod Antipas presided over Galilee and Perea. And Salome, his sister, presided as queen regent over Ammonia, Azotus, and Thessalalis. So, as scripture denotes, Herod the Great dies. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, deeming it safe to return to Israel. So, Joseph has four options provided for him. What does the hand of God reveal? Because again, is this implication of authority to which Pilate is drawing on. And the master is indicating this implication that there is an authority that you do not know of. Watch the hand of God at work prior to the trial being done three and a half years before. Scripture states in Matthew 2, 21 to 23, as it narrates, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, ah, <laughs> he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. The Synoptic Gospels, as with John's Gospel, narrates the various signs and miracles that are chronicled during the Master's earthly ministry. The Gospel of Luke actually uniquely notes that the Master avoided Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas. For as the master was performing signs, his work and story of his work reached back to Herod Antipas. And when the rumors of Herod's intention to meet him swirled back to Galilee, individuals, including the Pharisees who were witness, stated to the master, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. The master responds in part, Luke 13, 32-33 Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform miracles today and tomorrow, and on the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. The master prophesies the time to when he will meet Herod Antipas. And he states, when I meet him, it will be in Jerusalem. For his words, it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Well, let's return to our present setting. Again, Herod is appealing of his authority. And the master dictates that there is an authority to which you do not know. And that his hand moves all the intricacies of the world. And puts people into positions that they can't even understand. So how does the hand of God perfectly craft all this that transpired three and a half years prior to the day that it's present with the trial being at hand. Pilate was given three charges that stood against the master. And one of the charges included stirring up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee. Even it came as far as this place. So Luke notates in Luke 23, 6-7, Pilate's action and Demeter that followed. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod 
Antipas jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. The handiwork of God. It's quite profounding. Now, some of you may be wondering, I went through the history and said, wait a minute. I thought Herod Archelaus was over Judea. I thought Jerusalem was under his province. <laughs> well, the master spoke already. I'm going to meet with Herod Antipas. But as of Herod Archelaus, well, as the humanists like to say, it just so happens, quote unquote, that he was in prison in Venea. And his jurisdiction of Judea got annexed in Samaria. And guess who comes to visit? His brother, Herod Antipas from Galilee. Hmm. <laughs> As we see the secret power of God to which he directs creation is no doubt it should provide us as well consolation. Especially given what we've heard and had read to us with the scriptures. But the master's words even convey but so much more. Because I only shed light on his aspect and understanding of authority. Let's consider this aspect with the clause being put together. As he states, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So in context of this, in regards to the relationship between him, presently stated, to Pilate, who is a governor, we have the civil magistrate against a layman. And consider the trial at hand. We've had the civil magistrate, ecclesiastical officers, and a quote-unquote citizen who are taking into the aspects of an arena to which a trial is set. So now, with the words of the master, especially this aspect of Pilate on the ideology of his authority and the master reiterating, well, your authority comes from a power that you do not know. Let's consider his thought process, the master's thought process, especially now that we've conveyed how the secret hand of God had put these individuals notably in place. How does it now relate to Pilate? Given the master's words directed towards him. In relation to Pilate, he had another ecclesiastical officer try to take the case. So in this aspect of the civil magistrate, let's consider the aspect of equals amongst the superiors. Looking at Herod Antipas himself. Herod recalled the message from the messengers of Jesus as noted in Luke 13. So, Pilate, already by Luke 23, notates Christ's jurisdiction, seeing that, as the humanists would like to say, it's convenient that Herod Antipas would have been in Jerusalem. Uh-uh-uh-uh. The secret hand of God has Herod Antipas in Jerusalem. Pilate saw... Well, let me send it over the case to him. It's proper jurisdiction of all course. A Galilean with a Galilean governor. <laughs> Antipas finally receives the master properly. And upon which, as Luke 23 verse 8 denotes, he wanted to see him perform a sign. The master does not cooperate. So then Herod is fed into his desire and now he further questions him, questions him at length. Yet the master provides no response. So at his command, Herod had his soldiers treat the master with continued contempt and mocking. And upon a peace offering to Pilate, he sends the master back dressed in a gorgeous robe. Luke 23, 8 
through 11. Now, the robe that is draped over the master from Herod could very likely be the same robe that the master had draped back on him after he took his lashings. And I say this because you may see, or if you're familiar, when you compare it to the other Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and John, we are told that the Roman cohort fitted the master with a drape. Now, there's also a contention about the color. Matthew depicts that it was scarlet, Matthew 27, verse 28. John and Mark narrates that it was purple, Mark 15, 17, and John 19, verse 2. Why the color difference? I'm going to address it here, because again, you find individuals who like to find schisms. Well, it could be attested to that we have different versions of the Bible, especially how they were translated and give it iterations. The Latin Vulgate in Luke actually denotes that it was a white robe. The Syriac version renders it to be scarlet. The Aramaic, I'm sorry, Arabic in the Persian version denoted that it was red. Calvin states, though there are different colors, so we're not denying this. Though there are different colors, we do not need to trouble ourselves with this matter. John Gill tries to make an attempt to know something that I think is also interesting. There could have been two robes. The one, a purple vest, and the other, a scarlet vest. Nonetheless, the colors signified and signified something. They were worn by kings. Very good analogy there. What would I say? Whether white, red, scarlet, or purple, the gorgeous robe that Herod draped the master over after being humiliated is not the context. It's the fact that he sent him back in mockery and contempt to Pilate created a bond between two enemies. It shows, just as Pilate saw he had no fault, Herod did as well. The master did not cooperate. And notably, given the fact that they bonded from that point forward, Luke 23, verse 12, it shed light even into this amongst pagan magistrates. You may have a history of entity between the two of you. Yet, if you share commonality to which Pilate, using jurisprudence, by the way, $10 word in case you're wondering, which means a study of law, but then also understanding Christ's proper jurisdiction, provides the olive branch that the case belongs to his proper place. And Herod, realizing you sent him to me, thank you, but I'm going to send him back because he didn't do what I asked. You can do with him as you please. They bonded over ill ambitions. So we look at the civil magistrate and what transpired amongst themselves. But in light of which, it provides some context between two individuals, Herod and Pilate. Well, let's consider now the ecclesiastical officers. For again, these are individuals of authority. And they have their own realm to which God has made decreed by his own word. Yet, at the malice intent of these individuals who hold these offices, well... I have some power. Let me see how well I can wield it. <laughs> so we look at that Sanhedrin and its relation to Pilate. So we know the onus of the verdict as the transition is put back on Pilate. And the Sanhedrin has already brought the three charges against the master. And again, being as it may, Christ is delivered to Pilate's hand under Caiaphas' warrant. I can't stress that enough. 
Pilate realizing the plaintiff, the defendant, and his own soldiers at attention, he's aware of the Sanhedrin's intent. So, he takes the master aside, and then he provides his own question, his own line of thinking, as John 18, 28-38 narrates. As Pilate is rendered with the facts, and comes to a constitution, Another $10 word. I'm not talking about the way we operate in the U.S., but if everyone understands it, it also means decision-making. But nonetheless, he constitutes that he finds no fault or guilt of the master. But given the actions of the Sanhedrin to present this man as a criminal, again, he was brought forward under the warrant of Caiaphas, the high priest, with the use of his own generals, not the governor, He sensed that they were reaching towards something that he, in his mind, could not come to the same agreement. He saw that they would not cease until the verdict of death is rendered. Note their own ideology, as has been noted in John 18. I'll go with verse 31. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And note what it stems from in the prior with verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, <laughs> we would not have delivered him to you. So as the Sanhedrin now is witnessing the trial unfold, from Pilate's questioning to the master, from the master being sent to Herod and back to Pilate, they realize their case was in jeopardy. Because note Pilate's retort. I use Luke 23, 14 to 16 to narrate the following. You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. Remember the charges? And behold, having examined him before you, I find no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod. For he sent him back to us. Behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, here is my verdict. I will punish him and release him. So what is Pilate's method of punishment? Where death can be avoided if at the very best kept at a minimum. He has the master summoned to be flogged in or scourge by the Roman flagrum, or in some cases, as some people know it historically, the cat of nine tails. Now this is the somber moment, as denoted with Matthew 26, 27, Mark 15, 15, and here now in John 19, 1, given that Jesus was seen as a Jew, especially with the master in his speech with Pilate, as denoted in John 18, they would then take to the Jewish custom of this punishment, though it was done by the Roman flagrum. So, the lashings, the flogging, the scourging, was 39 in count. Reason being, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. And with the intent of this punishment, the death would have been at the very most just avoided. But historically, it actually has been proven they actually died when taking on to this form of punishment. Others, mind you. So from the blows and the trauma of the short whip, with each tail containing a lead ball at the very end, the intent was to lacerate and strip the skin from the body. See, Pilate thought this trauma and this punishment would suffice not only himself, but the individuals present amongst the case. You know, it's also noteworthy. The gospel writers, not one of them reference Isaiah 53 verse 5, which reads, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed. For those who want to be comical and think that the scriptures were slack in their reference, 
I tell you, I feel sorry for you. But sad, this is far from it, from the lack of reference. Why? It's because I was trying to explain, like I said before in the beginning, the central theme was of Christ's obedience on to death. Yes, he took the punishment. And as sad as it might drum up and the feelings that comes from it, there was a meaning behind it. And what he's showing, especially with his words, because his words mean so much, was to show to us, you may see this, but there is reason behind all that is transpiring. So to continue, Pilate's attention was it focused on the flogging? He wanted the flogging to be a point that it will render it severe enough to appease the people and that the case will be done with. But that was not the intent of the Sanhedrin with Caiaphas leading the charge. For when considering their thirst for death was not satisfied or being uncompassionate that an innocent man stood there depleted a breath taking a charge it has to be telling that a humanist as Pilate can even find some sorrow the master denoted just the frailty not so much the frailty the depths to which man's heart can go and taking to using men who consider themselves religious or individuals who consider themselves in that point unquote to be of God's people he gives a parable of the good Samaritan see this is what happens when you get caught up in the details everybody worries about the good Samaritan did you forget it was the chief I'm sorry the priest and the Levite who first passed by that man, their own brother in some iterations, who was left stripped, left naked, left beaten, and they passed by the side, and it was a humanist, their own worst enemy, who had compassion. Note the humanists here as they come to the present setting with Pilate. As his soldiers present the accomplishment of his verdict, the soldiers state, Hail, King of the Jews! They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and placed back on him the gorgeous robe to which Pilate of Herod had gifted the master. And as they trotted his cold, depleted body, they did it with slaps to the face and show of mockery and contentment. Pilate witnessed all this because it came from the word of his mouth. Therefore, Pilate, seeing what he has accomplished from his execution, showcased it to the people. Behold! As John narrates, I am bringing him out to you so that you may find that I have found no guilt in him. Behold the man. So Jesus walks out in the robe with the crown of thorns. But you would think, again, there will be some sort of compassion. But as the parable taught us then, it becomes an even more effect. For just that same intent as the chief priest and the Levite passed by that man, leaving him for dead. Well, present day, the chief priest and the officers saw him, and only this time they cried out, Crucify, crucify. John 19, 2 through 5. The Sanhedrin finds it Convenient, as the humanists will have it, but like I said before, it's the hand, the sacred hand of God, that the Passover, or in their terms, the holiday, was here. 
As they stated in John 18.31, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. And they furthermore not even decided to walk into Pilate's governor residence because they did not want to defile themselves. Pilate also saw that the holiday was convenient because he stated as well by John 1839, you have a custom. I release someone for you at the Passover. So the Sanhedrin's response illuminates the master's words even more. For and like Jason brought up well, as we have spoken before, they behave like their father, the devil. John 8, 44. And they chose Barabbas, the son of father, over Christ, the son of God. So in the Sanhedrin, proceeding further, their cries and pleas is a notate to Pilate, this is what we want. This is our goal. For we could not convince you when we selected Barabbas over Christ. And then clearly you're presenting him to us. We want more. So as they called out, crucify, crucify, the narrative continues. After Pilate's presentation of Christ among their cries, it reads, Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I found no fault or guilt in this man. The Jews answered him back. Okay, well, it didn't work then with choosing Barabbas over Christ. We have one more appeal to you. We have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, it is worth noting, Pilate reiterated his decision three times. In Luke 23, verse 4, Luke 23, verse 14, Luke 23, verse 22. Here also in John, John 18, 38, John 19, verse 6, and also John 19, verse 12. So to further invoke trepidation in Pilate's mind, the Sanhedrin reiterate, he made himself out, which is the Messiah, he made himself out to be the Son of God. Here now the charge takes on a new sense. And he heard this charge before, as Luke's denotes, but here John is making this notion here. That the charge now pits Christ against Caesar. Because note how Pilate responds. After hearing this statement, he becomes even more afraid. You see, upon entering back into the patrium, or portorium, to which Christ is brought back in with him, thoughts must be running in Pilate's mind. And they could be various. But that notion that he made himself out, that the master, one of the charges he made himself out to be God, it could have worked on a superficial or superstitious thought process in Pilate's mind. That's one of the options. Why? According to Luke, in the prior, towards the beginning of the chapter in Luke 13, it was noted Pilate sacrificed Galileans. And their shed blood was mixed with his own pagan sacrifices. This is seen in Luke 13, verse 1. And though it was probable that the Galileans may have been Samaritans, think about it, the geography, as we noted before. And what did the Jews feel about the Samaritans? <laughs> They're illegitimate children of the covenant. So they thought themselves, hey, when they presented to the Christ, Look what Pilate is doing. And the price, the Christ denotes it and, and explains to them well what is supposed to be understood. But nonetheless, could that have ran through his mind? I mean, it's already notated throughout scripture. Well, how about his own wife? If you recall the night before in Matthew 27, 19, as we, I told Jason and spoke, she was tormented in her dreams the night before and disworn her husband. She sent a messenger, but the message was drowned out because the calls to crucify got louder and louder and louder. 
So upon hearing this adage within the charge, Pilate questions differently. As it continues, he asks the Messiah, where are you from? But this time there's no answer from the master. And I want to notate to you, in the prior questioning and his own line of work, Pilate was given no answers from the Messiah. So this is nothing new. And actually, upon not being given an answer, Pilate was left amazed or astonished. Matthew 27, verse 14, Mark 15, verse 5. But here, upon not receiving an answer, he burns with rage. To which he states, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you. You see, here is Pilate's mindset. If you want me to put it in layman terms. I have found you innocent. Yet to appease the people, I have had you punish. Surely you would have responded to me with what reason I have to release you alive so they will see from your very mouth, the charges they pressed against you are baseless, as I have found them myself. Well, let's put the master's words all together with, math, with uh, John 19, verse 11. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The master could have even said it this way. You purport to have authority, but you have failed to realize that someone greater, someone higher, someone you do not see, have granted this honor to you. And those around you, those you've come encountered with, at this point in presence, has taken advantage of you because you do not have this understanding. So it does not matter who has the authority to execute the work of the sword. Whoever misuses the authority that is as carried with that honor to shed innocent blood has the greater sin. Now you see the point to the reasoning why it was important to see the intricate individuals placed by God, craftily made, so that all those decisions, all those individuals played in the past had an important piece to play in the trial that took place three and a half years later. Calvin notes something very interesting because he adds on to this very thought. Actually, I think he explains it even well, and I'll read verbatim. Some think that this declares the Jews to be more guilty than Pilate because with the wicked hatred and malicious treachery, they were enraged against a innocent man. That is, those of them who were private individuals and not clothed with lawful authority. But I think this circumstance renders the guilt more heinous and less excusable on another ground, which is they constrained a divinely appointed government to comply with their lawless desire. For it is a monstrous sacrilege to pervert a holy, I'm sorry, holy ordinance of God for promoting any wickedness. So, at the very last, let's consider the citizens, after taking in now, we've seen the civil magistrate and the individuals that uh, are on the same level and equal with Pilate. We've considered the ecclesiastical officers to which, as I've shown here with the closing of this piece, but they took on a realm that did not belong to them. Well, let's consider the citizens and their responsibility in this matter. Their mere presence at the behest of the Sanhedrin add to the fear and trepidation of Pilate. For already knowing the dealings that the previous Roman governor, Valerius Gratis, had with the people, Pilate saw it imperative not to incite them, as John 19.12 depicts. 
From then on, Pilate sought to release the Christ. Luke 23, 20-23 adds even more to this narrative. Pilate, wanting to release the Christ, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found no guilt in him demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But with the Sanhedrin taking charge, the cries grew louder and louder. And look how Luke 23 continues. But they, being the crowd, were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. Among their cries, the, the master's words in verse 11 becomes even more illuminated. For through their illicit pursuit to misuse an authority they were not given, the Sanhedrin pushes Pilate further away. As 9, verse John 19 verse 12 continues, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And if this word gets back to Tiberius that Pilate could not control his province, Pilate will be looked on as a weaker individual, weaker than Valerius Gratis, the former governor. And though Valerius was corrupt, he maintained peace by any means necessary. Therefore, given the reputation of the Romans to deal harshly with individuals who they consider weak, whether you were physically weak or mentally weak, Pilate knew what would become of him. So, by John 19, 13, the narrative continues. Pilate, when he heard these words, brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat at the place called the pavement. And in Greek, the lithotros, but in Hebrew, the gabatha. The judgment seat that Pilate situates himself in is outside the praetorium and providing the verdict. And the Jews will be able to hear it for fearing to defile themselves before taking the Sabbath. It was very clear Pilate wanted their full attention. At which it could be considered before, according to Matthew, prior to releasing Barabbas, it was there his wife's messenger tried to warn him of her dream. Matthew 27, 19 to 21, but Pilate could not hear. Its design is not to be confused with the raised judges' seats as we see in today's courts. That is more of an English process, but it's considered to be a pavement and it's inlaid with mosaics or be given the fact that some modern iterations of it stated because of the grow of the grass, it had huge, square, smooth, hewn stones. But nevertheless, the dome that enclosed behind it allowed the judge to have square attention of the defendant and the audience. Now, the evangelist notes that it's the day of preparation for the Passover and it's at the sixth hour. This means that we've come to the conclusion of the trial. But, I want to bring this out now because I know when we come to the resurrection, timetables are also important. But as of where John is breaking this into this text, he's showing that the trial is now going to be concluded and Christ is now going to take to Pilate's new verdict. New verdict. But nonetheless, when Jason returns, he'll be able to give more context into that. But... With this aspect here, I just wanted to note, do not confuse it with the aspect of the lamb being slaughtered. Because when you take the context of the Passover as it was shown in Exodus, especially Exodus 12, 3 through 6, there was a four-day preparation between the day, the time that the lamb was slaughtered, to the time that the lamb was to be eaten. So I just wanted to make sure I made that clarification. But nonetheless, the evangelist wants to note that Christ suffered. That's the notation of it. He's setting a setting. 
Christ suffered on the eve of the Passover. And the fact that, excuse me, we're getting this account that it looks like it transpired into the new day. This whole process is quite profounding, especially given the travels that the master had to take. But then also to hear the argument and to hear everything being presented, how intricate this trial came to be. So with it at hand, taking into account what has come over Pilate, Pilate then resorts to the point of least resistance. So, and all the while he will deliver them, he is still going to strive to keep his conscience clear. Matthew 27, 24 to 25 states, Pilate saw that he accomplished nothing, but rather that a riot was starting. He took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Well, again, <laughs> just like the parable in Luke, the crowd, the Sanhedrin, do not change. And they're just like their father. For what did they reply? His blood shall be on us and our children. Luke 23, 24 to 25, Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. By verse 25, he released the man, Barabbas, who they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and delivered the Christ to their will. And now here in our present setting, John 19, 6, 15 through 16, Pilate states as he sits on the judgment seat, Behold your king! So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So as it comes to a close, he delivers him, which is Christ, to be crucified. With my conclusion here, I want us to see some various aspects as the master, did, as the, as we consider what the master denoted to what he told Pilate, and especially given the dynamics to which Pilate revealed and showed himself. Pilate is a pagan governor, but Pilate operated within the scope of his office. He heard the charges. He examined the facts from the plaintiff, the, sole defendant he sent him to the proper jurisdiction once he realizes they could not have done anything he realized they came to the same conclusion he then appealed and used Roman law to bring about his verdict seeing that that did not appease the people The Sanhedrin being the plaintiff, with Caiaphas being the elite attorney, then wanted to take the court or the trial to a new level. Pilate, you're not sufficient. We're going to now appeal to Caesar. So taking his reputation into effect and seeing that even the defendant did not want to collaborate with him as he did not collaborate with Herod. Pilate says, okay, I will do what I need to do to keep the peace. But what's amazing in the master's last statement, it wasn't an appeal to Pilate that he possessed the authority to deal with him. It was a statement that though Pilate was censured, it was a statement also to us that we must understand the providence of God in the workings of the world. And in the context of our present setting, being it as it may, with all the individuals put into place and with the master answering Pilate in his question, he rendered to Pilate even though all those individuals play a part, your sin in this aspect is not lost. And only from you 
even though they may have done this, done that, deliver me to you, you are still accountable. But I want to make sure we leave here with a, a quaint understanding. Because remember the master denoted about something about a greater sin. And looking back through the gospel and the narrative of this trial, all the individuals who led Christ to Pilate all hold equal accountability. They're all equal. Judas, whose hunger for money at the expense of violating the law of God, leading the Roman cohort and the commander to Jesus on the basis of false allegations, found the master at his secret place. Or, for some, it really wasn't a secret because he, as God directed it, wanted Judas to find him there. But what's more telling for the commander in the Roman cohort to take the arrest, all they needed was identification of who to arrest. And Judas being one of the 12, proved it with a kiss. Herod Antipas, who received his kingdom on the death of his father and took on the assignment of presiding over Jesus' case, did it because his brother was in prison. But as Herod, I'm sorry, as Pilate saw it, Herod, this man is a Galilean. And he, Herod has always wanted to meet the Christ, but it was under malicious means. Dance for me. But when the master, when the master finally saw him and his lack of cooperation, Herod's guilty heart, evil heart showed his play. And upon responding him back to Pilate, he did it with a mockery by draping him as a false king. So then we look now to the Sanhedrin, led by Caiaphas, who was appointed by Governor Gratis. Because of his known cooperation with military rule in exchange for intel, he was granted exclusive access to the Romans' cohort, of which no known high priest before him have ever had this right. As a humanist, would like to say, but we would say by the hand of God. Just how interesting he was able to fancy and deliver the master to Pilate and convey the charges with the Roman cohort at attention. But what's more interesting is finally the final piece to which a lot of the determination of which Pilate was moved over the general population, and whose demeanor was to stone him when it was called upon, yet the master hid himself because the time had not yet come to seize him, they found the grandest opportunity. They incited the civil magistrate to violate the law of God by choosing to kill a man at the expense of not having them destroy your world. Sounds like a lot like our world today, doesn't it? So all these individuals, they have all sinned and they are equally accountable to God. And there is no sin that is so small that it deserves damnation. But yet again, the master speaks of a greater sin. So how is it to be understood? Well, though they are not different in the equality of where they all stand with God, God reveals to us how he punishes sin. So let me take your, your mind back memory lane. If I give you Adam in the garden, how severe was that punishment? Let me go a little step further. How about Moses in the cleft of the rock? Let me go one step further, make it even more personal. How about David? illicitly procuring another man's wife. Does all the ranges of the punishment now come up to the how severe they actually suffered? 
You see, the master, as he denotes the pilot, is also denoting to us. My father has given me authority to exact vengeance on the who and the when and the how. So wait and see how I will do it. His words now come true. John 5, 26, 27. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. By verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. When Pastor Jason returns, he will then take us into the crucifixion. Let's pray.